Okay, so I'm going to give you some background to the Educator Mental Health pro um, Project, and that will help me to make sense of why I chose to use the MPT coding framework. We're all very familiar with the policy drivers for co-production and involvement in clinical education in mental health. There's a very clear philosophical and ethical rationale for involving service users in our work. It's the gold standard in everything that we should be doing. And there is lots of experiential knowledge in education and in other pillars of practice. But there are a number of research issues, and that is that the terminology used in the way that we involve and co-produce with educators is vast. We are information specialists at the Trust identified 30 synonyms. So it's really difficult to find evidence when we can't type in a search and look for it with a particular ease. It's a really under-researched area um, of practices, co-production and involvement in um, education, and particularly in medical education. Uh, we found five empirical papers when we attempted to do a review on involvement in psychiatry in medical education. And it's because it's a particularly complex area to research. The interrelationship between the learning environment, different student groups, the way that we tailor our work to individual students, lots of students have their own lived experience, and of course the knowledge and experience um, of individual educators that come and work alongside us. There's a huge gap in knowledge and it's an under-theorised area of practice. And consequently, we, we run the risk of um, having some very implausible theoretical ideas about the way that this works. When you look at the literature, I think Janet mentioned it earlier, it talks about lots of the positives about co-production and involvement. But we make big knowledge claims. We make claims that involvement of people with lived experience will break down barriers, will challenge stereotypes. We're asking people to do really big things and of course, in mental health, we are, we work, we, you know, we know that there is epistemic injustice linked to psychiatric diagnosis. So epistemic injustice concerned with the validity of knowledge. We bring people along, we ask them to talk to students. Students may not find their knowledge to be credible. They may not find it to be particularly valid. And we run the risk of deepening those epistemic injustices for the people that we want to involve. And epistemic injustice, do you know what? I'll save my throat. Please just read the quote. <laughs> okay. And there are other contextual risks when we think about co-production and involvement in clinical education, and that is that in mental health we've got a really depleted clinical workforce, and we're quite reliant on finding new ways to educate the next generation of clinical professionals, and we run the risk of commodifying lived experience and education if we don't do this properly. There's a very limited evidence base um, in the NHS context, context for clinical education and involvement in co-production. And we run the risk, obviously, for individual educators of tokenism. The literature tells us lots about tokenistic involvement. We run the risk of burdening people by asking them to tell stories by asking them to challenge these very entrenched stereotypes. And we run the risk of very uncritical solicitation of patient stories. We ask 
people who have lived experience of mental health problems to come along and respond to very unpredictable, often student emotion. And we're quite unclear about what the role for educators by professional experience should be as part of that work. Should we be co-producing? Should we be doing co-facilitation? What is our role with supervision, debriefing, peer support? Should we have some communities of practice? There are a number of implementation issues when we start to think about how we should be doing this. And we need to understand how we need, how optimally to organise and deliver co-production and involvement in clinical education in mental health, and particularly in the NHS setting, where we are working with people who are not always healthy volunteers. We are working with people who are currently under services, and we have a duty of care. We also need to ensure that educators by lived experience contribute to high quality learning that meets the curriculum requirements. And of course, we're not wasting people's time if we know that we're involving people in good quality education. So, which leads me to this narrative synthesis which I'm undertaking as part of that piece of work. This is a narrative synthesis that is looking for, across all disciplines, um, exploring involvement in clinical education in mental health. I want to look at the evidence base, so I'm only including empirical papers as part of this review and we do plan to do a separate grey literature search later. We have found, we did 163 title and abstract checks in Rayan, 45 studies met the selection criteria, they were screened with the mixed methods appraisal tool and we excluded 15 papers due to quality, there are 31 papers included in the review. Not surprisingly, most of the studies identified were in nursing, uh, but we retained some in medicine, pharmacy, social work, psychology, and OT, just one multidisciplinary paper. Most of the studies in nursing are actually from the same research group, interestingly, so there, there really isn't a lot of work that's been done kind of more broadly. Um, mostly descriptive studies, uh, seven in the UK, only one in a clinical setting, um, a combination of focus groups and interviews or a mixture of the two. So because I wanted to look at implementation, I, I didn't want to look at ideology. We know what the ideology is. I wanted to look at how we should be doing this practically. I chose to use the um, MPT framework for qualitative research. The theory goes in, the, the, in their paper that this reduces the cognitive and practical burden for researchers who want to look at implementation. It's an action theory. It's concerned with what people do. It's not concerned with actions or beliefs and it offers an explanatory framework to describe, assess and improve implementation. And there's four main components of it, um, coherence, cognitive participation, um, collective action and reflexive monitoring. But what the framework does is it provides a ready-to-use uh, framework um, that can be coded directly into InVivo 14 and it simplifies the application of the theory. And this is really useful in this piece of work because Often we've tried to involve um, patients or experts by lived experience as part of our work without really planning the process. And it's become an organic um, policy, an organic protocol for the way that these things are delivered. They're of, often very locally um, thought up. So this is a really good theory to try and unravel what's happened and to understand implementation. 
Um, the 12 primary constructs um, map onto uh, realist methods, context, implementation mechanisms, and outcomes. The problems that are found with using this framework is if you're not familiar with realist methods, it, it would be probably quite difficult to untangle the difference between the context, the mechanisms, and the outcomes. Um, when you read academic papers, trying to untangle barriers, facilitators, and implementation components is a bit tricky. And I've got a few concerns about intercode reliability. I'm not convinced that everybody would code similarly. The review is still ongoing, and I'm hoping that I will untangle some of that work as I go on. But I'm just going to give some headlines of what I've found so far in the literature. So looking at contexts, the, the world that we live in, the way that we operate, um, educator by experience programs in mental health, what are the current involvement issues in clinical education? How does implementation in the mental health context differ from other specialties, if it does? Well, in mental health, we have historically operated within reductionist biomedical frameworks for understanding disease and in mental health, harking back to the asylums and the clinical gaze. And we know we need to involve people as active participants in mental health care. We've got a very clear policy position Involvement and co-production shifts power. In terms of how, what workarounds have made involvement possible in mental health contexts, well, in the literature, we learn that recruitment <coughs> and retention hasn't really been given adequate atten um, attention, time, or resources. So what we've done is we have involved uh, service users in storytelling that is positive and often uncomplicated. And what we have done is we have excluded people who we consider to be unpredictable. And in terms of how easily involvement fits into existing ways of working and delivering clinical education, well, we've retained our culture of professional expertise and we've made sure that involvement has been grafted on nicely to established structures and working practices. We've involved people who've got professional expertise that fits within our framework. For example, school teachers with prior experience of public speaking. And if we think about how the context of reframing organizational logic, logic, how involvement has changed, thinking about clinical education, whether we do think about educators by lived experience uh, as legitimate and equal educators, well, in the literature, the aspirations for transformative change, they're really clear. But what isn't clear is how students optimally learn with rather than about service users. Okay, but I'll go through some of the mechanisms that are reported in the literature. So the yeah, idea of coherence, how people work together to understand and plan the activities that need to be accomplished to develop and deliver involvement in clinical education. Well, it's clear that there's considerable labor involved to plan coherent activities, and this labor is often unrecognized. There are no pedagogical frameworks identified in the literature, and dominantly a storytelling approach is used. There's lots of reference to um, educators by lived experience requiring individual prep, training, and support, but it's not really clarified in the literature what that is. 
And in terms of cognitive participation, how people work together to create networks of participation and communities of practice, well, for some people, going into a university setting legitimised participation, but some educators reported in the literature that they felt wheeled out. Social circumstances were a real issue for participation, for full participation, because a lot of people didn't come from education environments, they had self-doubt, they didn't feel that their, their own educational levels were such to justify their participation at that level, and this put people off, and there was a real gap in the literature about what a community of practice should look like. How people work together to deliver involvement in clinical education and the daily we weekly tasks and how they're achieved, I was very interested in that. And there was this idea, this thread about partnership that came through the literature, but partnership was very individual and a lot of professional educators reported in the literature that they didn't have the time or expertise to develop those partnerships. But there was a gap in the literature looking at what support in education was needed by professional educators to get more involved in that type of work. In terms of reflexive monitoring, how people work together to appraise and evaluate involvement in clinical education aspects of it, Reflection and debrief was considered to be really important in the literature, but I didn't find any structured models. We don't know the, the correct ways to um, engage in this work. And support and follow-up, again, was, was often um, cited as important, but what that should entail was, was rarely described. So if we think about outcomes and how the intervention of patient involvement in education has been normalised, it's used for question and answer sessions. What is it like to be an inpatient? Storytelling, the dominant approach. But do we ask ourselves, can learners interpret the message that's intended? Educators are, they take part in role play, they take part in simulation. I did find one paper where um, they developed um, scenarios and people with lived experience were acting out a scenario that was not their own lived experience. And they take the simulated patient role themselves and allow students to take clinical interviews. But why do we use each approach? And what is being lost in the artificial classroom environment? When we're looking at all of these different ways to provide education, we have to understand why we're using each approach. And the cost benefit of involving people with lived experience in mental health <coughs> is quite unclear. In terms of how practices have changed as a result of developing and facilitating involvement over time and across settings, the literature reports benefits and enjoyment, but not very much about learning. And of course, involvement is not without risk. We really do need robust evaluation of different aspects <coughs> of involvement in clinical education and mental health. We, we, we read a lot about the relational restructuring stuff that we hope that involvement people with lived experience um, can bring about as a result of them participating in education. But the literature is clear that some professional educators experience quite a lot of discomfort with the performative aspects of storytelling. Students themselves might, might find particular discomfort when 
an educator story jars with their own experiences. And one of the thing in, things that I, was interesting I found in the literature was this idea of emotional processing of the story might be key to learning. We have to understand a little bit more about that because how are we making sure that those, that emotional processing is contained and managed and people are supported, students and educators? And of course, if we don't think about that, there's a risk of unintended consequences. So how is involving patients and or experts by experience in clinical education change norms, rules, resources that govern our actions? Well, when the teaching resulted in a shift in understanding, there was behaviour change in practice, there was less emphasis on paperwork, improved assessment skills, improved communication skills, and we really have to think about how we can optimise the conditions for behaviour change. We have to understand this a lot more than we, we already do. So in summary, we do, we do need to have a better theoretical understanding of co-production and involvement in, in mental health. And we have to understand the conditions for behaviour change and the unintended consequences of good intentions. We need better evaluation in this area. And I think the MPT framework has been really useful um, to try and unpick some of that, that stuff. I found it very helpful, if not laborious. I'd welcome any questions before my voice comes out. Thank you. <laughs> I was the, the key to, to learning sometimes is having a laugh. And the fact that somebody can really remember it, although there is all, there's all the reflection stuff that's all the so I think you've got some some something to, to look at there because I think if you enjoy learning together yeah that's transformation in itself absolutely struggling with not struggling but reflecting all the way through because we both work it's always trying to think and you said the cost it's almost emotional labour sometimes yes um, and then it's thinking what fix how do we transform? How, how do we stop making that, those conversations that it's not just bringing somebody in? <coughs> yeah. It's somebody who's got that, um, that, that expertise as well. Yeah. Confidence. So I think your work, your work is so important. Thank you. Yeah, nicely themed as well, actually, yes. in relation to what we've been talking about. Yeah. No, Karen did. She's always crying in the background. Yeah. You ask a lot of good questions there, then, and I think, you know, hopefully we're, we're starting to work through some of those answers, aren't we, about theory, mm -hmm. uh, about what it is we're hoping to change, behaviour change, attitudes. That's we, you know, we're starting to shine a light on the, the minutiae, the kind of nuance yeah. that's happening in that learning environment. Perfect. Yeah, uh, I'm getting it from Manchester. Uh, I know that there are not many uh, implementations theory out there to be used, but uh, I wonder how you come to conclusion that you use uh, you should use the MPT before you 
uh, are you exploring other any other theory or frameworks before deciding that? I looked across and there were lots of um, Janet referenced some of the different um, theories that are linked to with regards to um, educators but what I was interested in was the practicalities I'm an NHS nurse I wanted to know how do we do this every day how do we implement this and so it was the perfect theory for me to try to understand day to day what is happening and because um, this looks at late stage um, innovations which essentially this is people have been doing this for years it's it's well embedded in practice and educational environments but how and this is what I wanted to try and start to unpick how have we come to do things the way that we do so that we can think about doing it better thank you so what does you got to say about it then about the best fit because I'm at my mind sort of thinking oh okay well we could have somebody attack somebody because I, I, I get that term, I don't, being wheeled in. You know, yeah. sort of, being, being somebody wheeled in, here's your service user, have a little chat, not that they're going to meet service users on Facebook, but that sort of sense of where, you know, the being embedded as opposed to just kind of bouncing against our, our boundaries, so to speak. So, what's the, what to say, what's what you're finding? You know, what's the best fit? What, what should we do? I think we need to co-produce a teaching and learning toolkit, we need to get everybody involved and we need to, to gain some theory-focused consensus about how we do this and we need to be realistic about what we expect from um, educators that come and work alongside us and make sure that we have adequate safeguards in place to support people who do this very, very labour-intensive work. Well, emotional labour as well. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just bring up the point you said feeling moved in? When we started UConn, that's how we felt. Now, our group were at that time. I mentioned it outside as well. I know it's controversial, but our group said it. No, we want to be fully embedded within mm -hmm. the university. It took a long time to get up. Yeah. Through all the universities, we're getting there. Still not everywhere, but we're throughout a lot of it. We made that decision as a group, not the university. Our own group said no. We want more embedded within the university and the health nurse now owners, all of it. And we find it you talk about storytelling, but it's the story you're telling. Mm -hmm. Who are you talking about? Mm -hmm. You talk about and somebody says up to me once, Well, I want real people and I says, Well, I'm a real person, what do you know about? Yeah. Well you know what I mean, but you you've been here years. Yeah, but I'm still talking about real things in real life. And when you're in the mental health institutes, because I've been in that, because Turfers and you and severe ones as well, you can see the difference sometimes in who's actually communicating with users, if you want to call them, patients, whatever you want to call them, within that environment, you can see the different people within it. And it's being involved with the university, Health Change Act. It's taken, well, nearly 20 years, but we're still getting there. It's still not perfect, but will it ever be perfect? No. I'd love to talk to you about your experiences separately. How long you got? <laughs> Lunch. Any other thoughts? I think, I mean, I've witnessed and I've witnessed them thinking about Karen behind me as well, you know, that idea of co-creating a learning module or session together. When it's done right, you know, it feels right, it feels equal, it feels democratic, it feels nurturing and therapeutic, doesn't it? But it does take a lot of emotional labour on both sides, I think. On both, on both sides. On both sides. I think that's a really important point, actually, because sometimes I think that the perception is that 
it's it's a challenge for the service user, and, and it, it, you have to acknowledge that without a doubt. Often it's quite an opening for lived experience, but actually that that authentic way of working side by side with an academic is, is also very challenging for the academic because they have to move out of this theoretical safety zone into this, mm -hmm. this position of authenticity and and to work with that person to create a proper co-produced session. Whereas you might think the session is three hours, three, three hours for preparation, you can triple that. Mm -hmm. To do it properly, you can triple that. Yep. And, and you should triple it because it's worth it. Yeah. One of the things I'd like to do um, as this work progresses, if I could get funding, is to do a proper economic evaluation. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is a lot of work that I should mention. Uh, Jill Anderson from Lancaster University did a lot of work about this and, and costing it all out, but unfortunately she never published it. Ah. So I'll just put you in touch with you. Please, thank you. We've done it with the offender personality But they have been a, a part of every single stage of it, including the 